Um, would you please turn your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8? This morning and this weekend is Memorial Day weekend. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. And we want to acknowledge those in our church family and those in our extended uh, church family, those we're connected with, uh, that have lost women and men who served our country. And uh, maybe it wasn't a family member. I know that we have a few in our church family who they themselves deployed overseas and, and lost people in their platoon or, or squad. They lost people that they, they knew, um, whether it was in Vietnam or uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. So we want to say uh, thank you to you all who served. We want to acknowledge the loss of friends and family who sacrificed their lives for our country. And so we are, are grateful. We're thankful. I encourage you to take a moment, take time this weekend with your children, your grandchildren, whether it's in person or over FaceTime or Skype, to say, hey, we want to tell you about these people. We want to let you know about these people that sacrificed everything so that you can enjoy the life that we live, uh, even even in a, a lockdown kind of situation, even in, during a pandemic, it's still you know such a great country to live in, and we're so thankful for all who sacrificed their lives, and we want to remember them on this Memorial Day weekend. Now, if your Bibles are open to Mark's Gospel, chapter eight, we're going to start in verse twenty-two where we left off last week, and it says that they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, gross. We're going to get to that. If, you, if you're like, wait, Jesus spit on somebody's eyes? Yes, we're going to get to that. And put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, why do people or who do people say that I am? Verse 28, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. You know, there's the, the famous old saying, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Spoiler alert, the chicken. It's another story. But which came first, the chicken or the egg? Put it another way. To quote the movie, you can either accept that your father was a good man and a pirate, or you can't. What I mean by that is this. 
we as people, generally speaking, like things that are safe and neat and clean. Especially Americans. We like things that are safe and neat and tidy. We like things that are simple and straightforward. That's, generally speaking, how we like our movies, our TV shows, our books, our stories, our legends. There is a tension. Can two things be true at the same time? One of the greatest tensions in the Christian faith is what we call the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the authority of God, and the free will of people. So God is all-powerful. He is over all things. And yet, people do seemingly whatever they want. And God seems not able or willing to interfere with that. Do I seek after God or does God seek after me? This is a tension. Which is it? Did God seek after me or did I seek after God? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, my search for God or God's search for me? This is a tension in the Christian faith and in the Christian life. Here's the truth. If you're filling in your notes this morning, notes are available in the, uh, there's a link in the chat thread. But if you're filling in your notes this morning, you and I, we can either live in the tension of God's truth. We can either choose that we are going to live in the tension of God's truth, or we can explain it away until we feel safe. We can either live in the tension of God's truth or we can explain it away until we feel safe. And that's what some people do. Is God sovereign over all things? Or do I have free will? Some Christians feel safer in the sovereignty of God. And so that's where they lean. And they only quote the parts of the Bible that talk about the all-powerfulness of God and they ignore or minimize the parts of the Bible that talk about human responsibility. Some Christians and some people feel safer with the free will of people. It fits their way of thinking better. And so they emphasize the parts of the Bible that talk about human response. They only quote the parts of the Bible that talk about human choice to do good or evil and they minimize or ignore the parts of the Bible that speak of God's all-powerfulness, His sovereignty. This is a tension. Now, my default now, and has been for many, many years now, is that whenever there is a part of the Bible that seems to be at odds with each other. Here are two equal and opposing truths, and they both seem to be true in the Bible, and yet they seem to be at odds with each other, and they're pushing and fighting. It's, it's almost like a tectonic plate, and, and you're worried there's going to be an earthquake or a volcano explosion or something. My default these days 
whenever I come across a tension, especially in the Word of God, is I want to sit right in the middle of that tension, even though it can be uncomfortable, even though it can feel like I just want to get to where it's safe. I, I want to get to where I can easily and neatly and safely tie a little bow around it, you know, make sure that it's all clean and I understand everything. The tension this morning that we're going to look at in this part of the Bible is the tension between God's work in our world and our response to that work. Look at verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, which is a town on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. The, the town existed, they believe, just east of where the Jordan River flows into the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And this man who was blind was brought to him. Think about this. That man did not wake up that day thinking, maybe today is the day that I will be able to see again. There's no way that I believe that's true. He would have stayed blind. He would have stayed blind without God's direct intervention in his life. There was nothing that he did to restore his sight. It's interesting. How would he have known? It says that when Jesus healed him, Jesus said, can you see? And he said, well, it looks like people, but they look like trees walking around. How would he have known what trees looked like? It's very possible that he was not born blind. Maybe, maybe he, his eyes failed him early on. Maybe he had a, a fever or some sort of illness that led to his blindness. And we, we know the stories, you know, Ray Charles was not born blind, but lived blind most of his life. Uh, if you were like me as a kid and you watched The Little House on the Prairie TV show, uh, you, you know, spoiler alert, you know that the older sister gets a fever and then goes blind because of it. Um, and, and, you know, that was a possibility. Maybe he had some sort of head trauma. Um, we, we don't know what it was, but it's very possible he was not born that way. But there was nothing that he was going to do that morning, that day, to restore his sight. He was able to see at the end of that day, and as far as we know for the rest of his life, not because of anything that he had done, but because of God's initiated work. He didn't go looking to have his sight restored. God came to him. God's work is in our world. And yet people are involved in it. There were people that brought him to Jesus. There were people involved in God's work. Now, in verse 23, it says that Jesus spits in the man's eyes. That is I can't prove it, but I have a theory. I have a theory about this. God knows, God knows that it is within the hearts of human beings to look for a formula. And one of the things that we see over and over and over again in the Gospels is that Jesus does not work by formula. He, he fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. 
And then when it came time to feed 4,000 people, less people, he used more fish and bread than he had used the first time with more people. For one person in the Gospels that he healed, he said, I want you to go wash in a river. For another person, Jesus spit in the ground, made some mud, and then rubbed the mud in the guy's eyes. And in this case, he spits directly into the guy's eyes. And then in another case, it's just like, yeah, you're healed. There's no repeatable method in the way that Jesus worked. And my theory on this is that this is such an out, unusual, outrageous act that he knew this was not going to be something we would copy, nor should we. Don't go spitting in people's eyes. What's going on today? Oh, you know, I've, I've got a headache. <laughs> don't do that, especially right now. Don't do, don't do that, especially right now, but ever, seriously. My theory is that this is not something we are supposed to copy, but this is something we are supposed to believe. I believe in the divine work of God in our world. When I hear that somebody is sick, I pray for their healing because I have no doubt that God, if it is his will, can do whatever he wants. But I'm not going around spitting in people's eyes. And I think we have to be careful about taking God's divine work and then trying to make some kind of human, repeatable, marketable formula. I'll never write a book this way, so. Oh, bummer for me. In verses 24 and 25, the man is healed partially, and then he is healed fully. Here's what I know to be true. If you're filling in your notes, God's work might not happen all at once in your life or in my life, but God finishes what he starts. Let me say that again. God's work might not happen all at once in your life or my life, but God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts. You can look up on your own time. I know it's super small in there, but Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. God will finish the good work that he starts in our lives. There are a couple of ways that you could look at this, and I think there's truth in all of them. One way of looking at this is to say, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we become Christians, as, as the scripture says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And we enter into the grace of God and Jesus removes our sin and all justice and judgment that was coming to us that we deserved has been removed. And God only sees the righteousness of Jesus when he looks at us. And yet, we still do things that we shouldn't do. Our, our hearts, our thoughts are still struggle with with. Uh, selfishness and anger and resentment and self-centeredness and all the things that come from that. And that's where that 
second work of God's grace comes in. That power, that sanctification. Jesus said to his followers, he rose from the dead, and then he said, I'm going to ascend into heaven now, but you wait in Jerusalem, for you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And they waited in Jerusalem, and on that Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit descended on those original believers, probably about 100, 140 people, and the Holy Spirit descended on them, and they received the power of the Holy Spirit, and they began to proclaim the good news of Jesus, and others believed, and then they, where we have recording in the book of Acts, where they received the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we are in Christ, there is a second or additional work that we can expect. And maybe that's what this is pointing towards. That I've been saved, I've been forgiven of my sins, but the power of God in me, and then I begin to see the fruits of the Spirit produce in my life, like the book of Galatians says, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, long-suffering, self-control. These are the, the fruit of God's Spirit working in your life, or we see the gifts of God's Spirit in our lives. We need wisdom. God's Spirit gives us wisdom. We need faith. God's Spirit gives us faith. So it could be that when we see a partial and a full work, that this is pointing us towards that, that Jesus has forgiven us, justified us, made us right before God, but then he is working his sanctification, his setting us apart. He's giving us the power to live the Christian life in victory. It could also be that what's being pointed towards here is you before, before you become a Christian. Many of us can look back on our stories and we can see how God was moving us towards him. And we had no interest in the things of God. And then you had a conversation with somebody. You saw a movie, you read a book, you heard a podcast. Something stirred something in you and you began to see things, but you weren't fully there. And then at that moment of surrender, when you gave your heart to Jesus, when you really did believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, then at that point you were fully able to see Jesus for who he is. I believe both things are true. But I believe this, all throughout the Bible, all throughout the word of God, it is God who initiates his work in our world. When Adam and Eve sinned, it says that they hid from God. And they didn't go looking for God. It was actually God who came looking for them. When the people of, of Israel, and if you're watching our 20-minute uh, Bible study podcast or listening to it, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or our, our website, faithonhill.com, we're going through the book of Exodus in our 20-minute Bible study, and the people of Israel are in slavery, and God raised up Moses to be their deliverer. God initiated the work, and on and on and on and on, God initiates the work, including sending Jesus. It was all God initiated. 
But at the same time, you know, that tension I was talking about, human beings have to respond to God. Human beings have to respond. So this man, Jesus tells him, don't even go back to the village. Don't tell anyone. And why he says that, I'll get to in a minute. And then they leave, and it says that they go up around Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you get on Google Maps, and if you're looking at the the north part of the Jordan, uh, sorry, the Sea of Galilee, where the Jordan River enters the Sea of Galilee, and then you draw a line almost directly north, you'll find Caesarea Philippi. It was a Roman city north of the Sea of Galilee. And as they're walking there, Jesus uses the opportunity to speak with his disciples. I remember some of the key spiritual conversations in my life as a kid happened as I was driving somewhere with my dad. And my dad, that was what he did. He used the car. It was me and him in the car. You know, we'd talk about stuff. And Jesus is using this travel time as opportunity. And man, let me tell you, parents, grandparents, use the opportunities that you have. Last week, uh, I said some things in the sermon, and my kids were like, wait, really, what? And so afterwards, we talked about it. Um, You know, in, in our response time, we talk about praying. Maybe instead of singing along, you and your family pray together. There's opportunities that we have in this season uh, that you may not have again in the same way. And so I encourage everyone to take those opportunities. But as as they walk, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And now this echoes what we read in Mark chapter 6, where uh, Herod, King Herod, uh, and his court, his leaders and servants and yes men, they were all talking about who Jesus was. And it's the exact same list. So what Mark is giving us in his, in his account of Jesus' life is this is the common public perception of Jesus in Israel during his earthly ministry. There were three options that people believed. First is that he is John the Baptist reincarnated. Now this is what I call the superstitious option. You might remember this from when we talked about it in Mark chapter 6. This is the superstitious option. This option makes no sense. Jesus was on the scene at the same time as John the Baptist. Now, I I can grant that, okay, Jesus did his ministry mostly in the north. John the Baptist was in the south. Um, Maybe some people didn't have all the information. But there was Jesus and there was John the Baptist. It doesn't make any sense that Jesus and John the Baptist would be the same person or that Jesus would be a reincarnation of John the Baptist. This is what I call the superstitious option. And there are plenty of people that address spirituality in a superstitious way. Here's God working in our world, and here's our response, but it's not the way that that the Christian faith describes. It's a superstitious sort of thing. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, sure. But, you know, I also believe in karma, or I I believe in in spirits, or I believe, you know, that that if I don't, if I'm not careful, you know, Ghosts, I mean, seriously, there there are very intelligent, very smart people that I know that they take everything to do with faith in terms of superstition. These aren't just, you know, primitive people. I know very, very intelligent people who absolutely believe in ghosts, believe in the superstitious, 
And I take that sort of view when it comes to the Christian faith. The next option is, they said, some say that you're Elijah. Elijah was one of the most important prophets in the history of the nation of Israel. There's Samuel, there's Isaiah, there's Elijah. They're like the big three when it comes to prophets in the history of, of the Jewish people. Elijah is one of two people in the Bible who did not die. Elijah and his assistant Elisha were walking and God caught Elijah up and it took him to heaven and he was no more, but he didn't say he died. And in fact, there are prophecies in the Old Testament scripture that talk about Elisha coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. And there was some confusion because somebody said, well, hey, here was John the Baptist, but isn't Elisha supposed to come? But Jesus, you're here. And Jesus said, if you can receive it, John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Personally, I believe that before Jesus comes again, there will be an Elijah type figure, if not Elijah himself. But the idea that Jesus is Elijah is the idea that he's some sort of holy man that he has true power. And there are many who believe that. That's one of the tenets of the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i faith says that for, for every era, there is a key holy man, a Buddha, a Jesus, a Muhammad, or a Baha'u'llah. And these are the, the key holy men of each era. And then, of course, there's, well, as other people just say you're a prophet. You're the same as Samuel or Nathan or Elisha or Joel or Malachi or any of the Old Testament prophets. You're just the same as them. And I would call that what the good teacher option or the moralism option. Jesus is just the same as any other enlightened teacher. Or even if he's not true, this is a really common thing I'm hearing from, from atheists now. In fact, I, I heard this discussed by a couple of atheists or agnostics recently on a podcast. And they said there, there is something, there is something within the human makeup that requires faith or requires religion. So you just pick the religion that works for you, pick the one that, that fits your way of thinking, and then just try to be a good person based off of that. And if, if religion does something for you, then that's great. That's the sort of enlightened uh, atheistic view on these things right now. And that's what some people think of Jesus. He's just another good teacher. It's a good set of morals. And if you just follow the teachings of Christ, you know, if that works for you, great. What's the common denominator? None of those things require human response. If you have a superstitious view of faith, then it can be whatever you want it to be. If Jesus was just another enlightened holy man, well, that's good, but I can never attain that, you know? I loved that line in the um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the Mr. Rogers movie with Tom Hanks, and the reporter is talking to Mr. Rogers' wife, and he says, what's it like to be married to a modern saint? And she says, I don't like that term. I don't believe he's a modern saint, because that implies that he's attained something that no one else can. But that's what we think of. We say, oh, he's just a holy man. He's on some other level, and I don't even have to bother trying to get there. Now, is it true that Jesus, as God, is on a whole other level and we shouldn't even try? Absolutely. But what that does is it pushes off any need for response.
And then finally, there's the moralistic. He's just a good teacher. He's a good teacher, but there's a lot of good teachers. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And their response is that you're the Messiah. That's a decisive decision. Which came first, God's work in your life or your seeking of God? Personally, both. That there was something not right, and yet God initiated, but I also had to seek. That's a tension, and I'm okay being right in the middle of that tension. But at some point, when things are tense, it forces a response. Something has to give. Something has to give. You have to make a decision. And Jesus says, I don't, I'm not talking anymore about who other people say that I am. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? If you say he's just a good teacher, or he had some good morals, or it's a, I don't even know if he's real, but it's just a construct and that works for some people, then that is to reject what Jesus claimed about himself and what the Christian faith claims and believes. And that's fine. You can reject, but at least admit that you're rejecting. Who do you say that Jesus is? God wants to show us Jesus, but we have to open our eyes to see him. That man could have fought and struggled as Jesus spit in his eyes and brought about healing. That man could have said, I see people walking around like trees. That's good enough because it's better than where he was and then walked away. We have to make a decisive decision. Who is Jesus? Verse 29, he says, who do you say that I am? If somebody asked you, who's Jesus? Could you give a coherent answer? I don't mean that to be critical or to make you feel bad if you can't. You know what? I can give a real quick and clear explanation of the gospel because I've practiced it. Because I've sat down, I've thought about it, I've said it over and over again. I want to give a clear and concise and easily understood answer that God created this world. He created it perfect. He created it as it was supposed to be. But the first humans sinned. They rebelled against God. They disobeyed him and they brought sin and death into the world. And we've been struggling with that ever since. And God initiated a rescue plan. And at the right time, God became a man, the man Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. He lived among us. He lived a perfect life. And when he was crucified, when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty, the justice that all of the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, everyone's sin, demanded a death penalty, the wages of sin or death. And Jesus paid all of that sin's justice in his death on the cross, and he rose from the dead three days later to prove his victory over sin and death. And anyone who believes in him will have his righteousness put on them and their sins will be removed. But I've practiced. I've said something like that many times. Who do you say that Jesus is? And if you've never made that decisive decision, 
Maybe you're like the person, you're like the blind man in that first thing where, where he sees kind of, and you're a spiritually aware person. You're a person who thinks about spiritual things, but the fullness of God has not been made clear yet. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And maybe you have a saving faith. Jesus is your Lord. But you need a fresh work of God's Spirit in your life. Who do you say that Jesus is? If Jesus is Lord of our lives, then we can trust him to finish the good work he has started. Now in verse 30, they declare Jesus to be the Messiah, and Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. He also warned the man who he healed. And we've seen this over and over again. Because it was not yet his time. From the moment that he publicly declared himself Messiah, the time clock started, and within a week they had crucified him. It wasn't yet his moment. But now we are in the season where we tell everyone we can. We tell everyone we can. The casual Christian, the closeted Christian, that's not the season we're in. This is a season to take up our cross, to die to ourselves and follow Jesus. Who do we say that Jesus is at Faith on Him? He is fully God, with God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. He is God the Son. He is the only way to have our sins forgiven. He is the only way to have a right relationship with God. He is the only way to have eternal life. But in this life, through the work of God the Holy Spirit, to all who are in Christ, Jesus is also the way to victory, righteousness, and peace in this life. God will finish the work that he has started. Is he going, is it, is it all his initiation or how much am, do I need to be involved? Both are true. We can live in that tension, trusting in Jesus. We know that God speaks and we know that we need to respond. And so right now we respond. We respond in prayer. And like I said earlier, maybe during this response time, where you are at in your home or wherever you're watching this, if you're with people, you just can pray together. Jesus, this is what I've heard you speak to me this morning. This is what I respond to you in prayer. This is what I need from you to help me respond. This is the work I need you to do. This is the healing I need you to do. We also respond in singing. We raise our voices and praise the name of our God. He is victorious over sin and death, and we celebrate him. And finally, we respond through generosity. We give of our time, our energy, our resources. I hope and pray that every person hearing my voice will find a way to give of themselves this week for others. Your strength, your talent, your wisdom, your resources, however God has gifted you, to 
that we'd find a way, how can I be for others and not just for myself? How can I be for God? How can I contribute for God's work? And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm so thankful. I'm hearing about different ways that people are contributing, people ways, different ways that people are looking out for each other and being generous. One of the ways that we as Christians believe that God has called us to respond to him is through generosity. We do believe that God calls us to give of our first fruits, what the Bible calls a tithe. And we have that opportunity uh, through uh, giving online. You can send a, a check in the mail to the church. You guys hear me say this all the time. If, you're, if this is your first time watching our, our services or, be, or with us online, we aren't here for your money. This is a way that those of us that this is our church can worship the Lord through the giving of our resources to him. We can support the work that God is doing here at Faith on Hill financially. But we encourage everyone to find a way to give as God leads them. Let's respond to Jesus together.